0: you are listening to the Sermon Podcast at Bethel. We're an evangelical covenant church located in western Wisconsin outside of Ellsworth, and you can find out more about us on our website BethelCov.org. My name is Todd Speaker. I'm the pastor here, and thank you for listening. We're going to look at at sort of Acts 12, the beginning of Acts 12 through verse uh, 24, because it tells... Um, it uh, records one one event, tells one story uh, of what happens. What happens in Acts. <clears throat> uh, but before we get there, I wanted to share uh, this thing with you that um, I stole uh, from another pastor. Uh, I was in a yes. Smart people invent things. Good smart people steal. Um, no, so uh, from this other pastor, his name is is Rich Villados. He lives in in New York City, which is where that picture is taken. Uh, and he shared this in a, in a webinar full of, full of pastors, and I thought it was really powerful. I'm going to share some of it now, and, and I'll share uh, the last little bit of it at the end today. Uh, but if you take a look uh, on that next slide, uh, so, so if you look at the left, uh, it, I've never been to New York City, uh, but if you have, you'd know that outside of Rockefeller Center, uh, there's a, a statue of, of that guy holding something. Who, can anybody tell me who that guy is? Atlas. And what's Atlas holding? The world. It was funny, I did a little Wikipedia-ing uh, in preparation for this. It turns out he's actually holding the sky. It's a common misconception. I thought it was the world, too. But here's Atlas. He holds up the sky, he holds up the world. You can Google that, John. We'll see. <laughs> he's, he's testing me. Um, maybe I went the wrong Wikipedia. Okay, so, so on the left, that's Rockefeller Center, New York City. It's the statue of, of Atlas holding up either the world or the, or the sky, the heavens. And then uh, right across the street from, from Atlas uh, right there, he's facing, um, what's that building? Does anybody know? Well, it's, it's written there, right? St. Patrick's Cathedral, okay? So, so this, is, this is where it is. So on one side, you walk past Atlas into, into Rockefeller Center, and on the other side, uh, you know, he's, he's facing uh, this huge, beautiful church. And, and it's interesting Um you know, Atlas, if you know his story, right, his job is to, is to hold up the world or, or to keep the sky from falling. And, and I think a lot of us um, sometimes imagine ourselves like, like Atlas. And I'm willing to bet that uh, the reason that statue exists right out in front of Rockefeller Center isn't because people believe that there's literally a man holding up the heavens, uh, because many people, especially maybe... The people that walk in and out of that building to work every day think of themselves in some small way of holding up their own universes, their own worlds, uh, their own heavens. And, and I don't know about you, uh, but there are times in my life when I feel um, to, to give myself the most false grandeur in the world where, where we, maybe we all feel a little bit like we're trying to hold everything together. And maybe you're not holding up the heavens or, or the earth Maybe you're holding up your family, maybe you're holding up your workplace and you know that you're the one person that if you get sick and not and you're not there, it's going to be a disaster and everything's going to fall apart. I think whether you're a teacher, uh, you know, maybe trying to help struggling kids or, or, a, or a grandparent worried about the faith of your grandkids... Or maybe you're a person struggling with depression, just trying to get through the day, or, or a parent uh, trying to hold a home together, or a high school kid trying to excel in sports and also get good grades and also do the right activities so you can get into the right school. I think a lot of us in this life feel sometimes like Atlas, overburdened and unsure of how long we can carry uh, the things that maybe we put on our own backs or that others perhaps put on our backs. And so there's Atlas, and as you go through, uh, and, and so the question is that this pastor raised, um, as we were looking at these images, right? Uh, so so maybe, uh, maybe there's two different images here. There's one on the left, there's Atlas holding the heavens, and then the, the testament of, of the church, maybe, is that uh, something else is, is going on with the heavens, right? And maybe the question sometimes we ask is, is it the people walking into Rockefeller Center that are holding up the world, or is it the people walking into St. Patrick's? Um, and, and I think it's, it's kind of a, an ancient question. You know, who keeps things going? Who holds the world? Even the Greeks wanted to know, who was it that holds it all together? Is it the people going in and out of that building, or the people going in and out of that building? What matters more? Well, well our scripture uh, comes from Acts 12, and it focuses on a conflict just like this. Um, a question of who is it uh, that's, that's in charge. Uh, but I think the answer it comes up with, the answer that we get out of Scripture is a surprising one. At least it was surprising uh, to me. It reminded me of something really important. Um, and it comes in about halfway through Acts. So if you've been with us, we've been walking through Acts together. Acts is the story of God's Holy Spirit changing the world. And so about halfway through... Um, this story in Acts 12, um, it, it represents the ending of, of one person's story in Acts and, and sort of is the page turn to the second half of the book. So we, we've gone up the mountain, and now for the rest of the summer, we're coming down. Uh, but this story, I think, is, is really important because it, it sums up something really key that Acts is trying to show us and that is trying to show us. But what I wanted to do to help us, at least to help me tell this story, was to introduce you guys the characters. And I want to I kind of cast the characters. So these are the characters of Acts 12. And so I'm going to need your help. Who's that guy in the top left? Elvis. El- Is that Elvis though, John? It's <laughs> not Elvis. It's, it's, uh, it's Elvis in the top left. All right, so, but that's an Elvis impersonator. He, for us, represents Herod, because Herod uh, was just like Elvis. He was the king, uh, but he was the king in quotation marks, uh, because uh, he was just a puppet of the Roman government. So you've got the king. Uh, does anybody, can anybody tell me who the second person is or, or what that second person is, what he's from? It's Star Trek. He's, he's, he's a Kirk impersonator, but what, what color is his shirt? Do you guys know anything about Star Trek? In Star Trek, the guys that wear red shirts, they don't last very long. He represents James. Sadly, James um, is martyred at the beginning of our story. So there's James. Next, who's that? Who can tell me who the third guy is? It's a multi-generational pop culture question. Who's that guy? Dwayne Johnson, otherwise known as? The Rock. Um, Peter uh, is also just like Dwayne Johnson. He's known as The Rock. His name literally means The Rock. So you've got uh, King uh, Herod. You've got James the Redshirt. You've got uh, The Rock, uh, down here, and, and this one's really deep cut. This uh, person is in a different show, and her name is Rose. Uh, there's a woman named Rose that we're going to get to. Actually, uh, the, the Greek version of her name is Rhoda, but it means Rose. So there's Rose. Uh, right there, this is uh, this is going to represent our church. These are the church people. They're doing a Bible study. And here, here's there's another crowd. Here's our second crowd. So the next slide has everybody's name on it. Um, perfect. I put that in there correctly. So here's who we got. We got the king. Uh, James, who's not Jesus' brother, that's the main thing we learn about him here. Peter, the rock, uh, Rhoda, Rose, the church, and the crowds. And so, so this is everybody here. So this is how the story begins. It says in, in chapter 12, verse 1 At this time, uh, King Herod, the, the king, uh, Herod, arrested some people who belonged to the church. Uh, and he was intending to persecute them. First, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw this, so 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 far, Herod uh, he kills he kills James, and he sees that the crowds are happy about this. So so right, Herod's a puppet king, uh, and he needs the people to like him, and he needs Rome to like him to keep doing his job. And so he sees that people are happy with what he did to James, and so uh, he goes ahead and captures the rock too, and he puts he puts Peter the rock in jail. And this happened during the Festival of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him into prison, handing him over to be guarded by four uh, squads of four soldiers each. And the plan was that after Passover, uh, Herod is going to bring the rock out to put him on trial. Okay, uh, But the night before Herod was going to put him on trial, oh, sorry, I skipped a really important verse. Verse 5 says this. So we've got Peter, he's in prison, uh, and, and the church does something. It says the church was earnestly praying to God for him, okay? So this is what everybody's doing. The church is praying that God would do something to help Peter. They already know what happened to James. And so they're praying and praying and praying. And you can imagine Peter, he's in jail. He's praying and praying and praying. And here we go. Uh, The king is is excited. Things are going to go good. People are going to be really happy. Uh, But the night before uh, the trial, Peter is sleeping between two soldiers uh, bound with two chains. Now, this was a, a common way of making really, really sure that you didn't lose a prisoner. You'd literally chain them up to the guys with swords. This guy's not going anywhere. And so Peter, is, he's sleeping uh, before his trial, and, and our Bible says this, verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and light shone in the cell. And I love this. He struck Peter on the side, you know, wake up, <laughs> wake up, he says, quick, get up, and the chains, they fall off Peter's wrist. So there's light, Peter gets hit hard in the side, and the angel wakes him up. Uh, and the angel says this, put on your clothes and sandals. And so Peter did wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of prison. Uh, but at verse 9, pay attention to this, I think this is so interesting. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing, that what the angel was doing was really happening. Peter, uh, he thought he was seeing a vision. Okay, so here's Peter. He wakes up blinding light. The angel leads him out of jail, and, and he's convinced, reasonably so, that, that this is this is a, a dream. This is a vision. It must be a vision, but Peter goes along with it. It says, they passed the first and second guards. Uh, they came to the iron gate leading the city. It opened by itself. They went through and when they had walked the length of one street, the angel leaves him. And so imagine you're the rock here. You just got dragged out of jail by this angel, and you're pretty convinced that you're still asleep. All of a sudden, you're standing in the middle of the road, and the angel you've been following disappears. And you're like, oh. Peter came to himself and said, well, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. Uh, I love this because Peter, who's... Uh, Jesus' closest disciple, who is the, the father of the church, he's the one in the beginning of Acts that stands up and preaches the gospel for the first time. Peter has actually been saved from prison by God before. Uh, and so Peter praying in his cell, um, he doesn't believe that God would rescue him. <laughs> you th- imagine what that takes, you know. And I think part of it is because Peter knows that James, another disciple, just, just lost his life. He was just martyred. Why would this be happening for me? But for whatever reason, Peter, he just he doesn't believe it. And this story, it, it plays with this question of belief. Uh, and it keeps going. It says, so finally Peter wakes up in verse 12 and says, okay, this is real. I probably should make a plan. Now he's an escaped convict. And so he's or not a convict, but an escaped prisoner. Uh, so he's like, well, I better go find the church. So he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where it turns out uh, the church, they were gathering and praying, right? Peter's in jail, and they were probably sitting together. We're just going to sit together and pray all night that God would do something to help Peter. And so Peter knocks on the door at the outer outer entrance, and we have Rhoda, Rose, shows up. She comes to answer the door. And as she's getting the door, she hears Peter's voice. Peter's, you know, let me in. You ever seen, uh, like, the, the beginning of the Flintstones? You know, he's pounding on the door, let me in. And, and she's so excited. Rose is so excited that Peter is here. She hears his voice, and she's going up to the door, and she hears him. And the second she hears him, she immediately turns around and runs away. And she runs away because she wants to tell everybody that Peter's here. Meanwhile, Peter, um, the uh, recently escaped prisoner, is pounding on the door outside. Uh, Rose, uh, Rhoda runs inside, and she says this. She says, uh, our prayer, right, has been answered. She says, Peter is at the door. Uh, you know, it's amazing. She's the, She believes, and, and not like Peter, she doesn't doubt. She believes, uh, but she says, she says, Peter's at the door, and and the, the guys and everybody else in the church, uh, I love this, in the NIV, just say, you are out of your mind. <laughs> We've been up late. We've been praying too long. That's impossible. Peter's in jail. You're out of your mind, they told her. Uh, but she kept, kept insisting. She refused uh, to give us. She says, no, no, it, it's Peter. And when she kept insisting, they said, well, it must be his angel. And we don't actually know exactly what this was a reference to, but uh, it's, it's clear that in the room, the early church, that first church that's been praying all night for James and, and for Peter, uh, just cannot imagine it's possible that Peter's outside their door. Like, there's just no way that he could be there. And so they're like, well, maybe it's like like, uh, like Peter's angel or like somebody that sounds like Peter, looks like Peter. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a ghost of Peter at the door. You know, they won't believe that he could be there, but he, Peter, he's still Fred Flintstone. He's pounding on the door, you know, Wilma. Um, and finally, they open the door. They see him, and, and they're, they hit the floor. They're shocked, right? Uh, Peter motions with his hand and tells them to be quiet, and in the shortest I just escaped from jail speech ever, he says, uh, he, he tells them to be quiet. He describes what happened, how the Lord brought him out of prison, and then he says, tell James... And the other brothers, the other James, not the one who was martyred, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, uh, he said. And then he left for another place. And, and it's funny, in Acts, uh, we don't actually see the rock again for like a bunch of chapters uh, before we see him again. And he never plays quite the same role. Uh, his kind of last big words are, tell everybody about this, and then he vanishes. Uh, Peter's alive, but he disappears, Maybe he goes into hiding. Uh, And then the story continues. It says, you know, of course, in the morning, there was a commotion among the soldiers. What happened to Peter? Uh, Herod did what what kings do. Uh, He found somebody to blame. This time he blamed the guards, and he had them executed. Uh, And then it's funny, most of the time when I read this, I stop right here, but there's a little addendum for the king. The, The story actually ends with what happens to King Herod. So Herod, if you can imagine, he's been in Judea, He's making the crowds happy by capturing Peter and, and killing James, uh, but this goes really bad, and so he's like, eh, I'm okay. I don't want to deal with this anymore." And so Herod leaves. Uh, he goes to Caesarea, and and he makes this sort of business deal with a town that needs that needs um, that needs support, and so he makes this deal, and uh, and he gives this speech. It says this on and and. It's interesting, this is one part of of Acts that's attested in uh, another historical document about this, talks about, tells the story too. Uh, So Herod, he secures this big business deal. The king, you know, he's ruling really well, and he, he gives this big speech to celebrate what he had done. And he's wearing his royal robes, he sits on the throne, and he gives this beautiful speech, and they shout... Uh, the crowds, the same, uh, different people, but a crowd shouts, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And, and Acts tells us that immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> uh, it's a very odd part of the story, isn't it? Because here's Herod, he killed James, and, and he got through that, and he all, tried to kill Peter, and he got through that. But in this moment, uh, when he's willing to let the crowd believe he's a god, is when his judgment comes, and it ends with this last little verse, um, verse twenty-four. It says, "But the word of God continued to spread and flourish." And so that's that's the whole uh, the whole story here of what happened. It says the last thing, Herod gets eaten by worms, but the word. Yeah, of God continues to spread and flourish. And as I was reading this uh, scripture this week, I, I was asking myself, so like, what's, who cares? You know, what's the moral here? This is such a weird story. This is King Herod, and, and you know, maybe it's about how you shouldn't let people say you're God. That's probably a pretty good rule for this one to walk away from. Maybe the moral is, like, Jerusalem needs to invest in prison infrastructure because it was way too easy for Peter to get out of jail right? Uh, maybe, maybe the moral is when your friend escapes from prison, don't leave him banging on the door in the street. He might get captured. Let him in. Maybe the moral is, you know, we should be like the church and pray hard and earnestly for God to work. Um, but I, I think the point actually, it hangs on that, that line, but the word of God continues to spread and flourish. Because as we look at uh, our people here, um, they all have these weird stories, right? Peter, he can't believe that God could save him from this situation. Uh, So much so that he he thinks it's a vision when the angel comes to rescue him. Uh, We don't know what what James thought. James starts the story uh, losing his life uh, following God. Um, uh, The king... He convinces himself, you know, if Peter doesn't doesn't believe Peter and the church, they don't believe God could do this. Uh, Herod has a different kind of belief. Herod uh, has a couple good things happen to him, and then he's convinced himself that maybe he is a God. (laughs) If you ever met anybody that has a a string of good things, you know, you, you get convinced. You buy your own hype. Like, yeah, maybe I am. Maybe I am the king. Maybe I am a God. Rhoda, you know, she, she messes up, too. She believes Peter, but, like, she forgets to open the door. She goes in and finds the, the church and argues with them instead of just letting Peter inside. You know, nobody looks, nobody behaves perfectly on this. And even Peter, you know, the rock. Jesus said, you're the rock on which I'll build my church. For most of the rest of Acts, Peter becomes a, a minor character. And, and you, might, uh, you might be wondering... Um, you know if if that's true if Peter sometimes doesn't believe if, if Peter's calling and ministry ends in this weird way if if James loses his life to, to Herod's sword like like what can we what can we do? Uh, and, and I think um, it, it all has to do with that that line uh, that no matter what Peter does, whether he succeeds or fails, no matter what Herod tries and And whether or not Rhoda opens the door, and even the church um, doesn't even believe that what happens is possible, God still works. Uh, The word of God continues to spread and flourish. In fact, if you look at the whole book of Acts, you can see this theme repeated again and again and again in every story. Uh, Because in the first half of Acts, you'll notice uh, religious leaders, you'll notice kings like Herod. You'll notice soldiers. Uh, you'll notice um, uh, charlatans, people who will kind of get in with the way, with the church, and they'll try and make money off the gospel. Uh, you'll notice Acts is full of these people that try and get in the way of what God's trying to do. Uh, and it's full of, of good people who, who fail at doing the right thing. Good people that don't believe hard enough. Uh, good people that don't always perfectly follow God's call. Good people that let themselves and others down. But it, you notice that no matter who stands in God's way, in Acts, the word of God continues to spread and flourish. Uh, through the whole first half of Acts we've read, you'll see good people killed and persecuted. You'll see them bear witness and share generously and pray. Uh, but the word of God continues to spread and And flourish. You'll notice people fail and succeed. They believe and they don't believe. They listen to the Spirit, and they take risks, and sometimes they don't. But no matter what, the Word of God continues to spread and flourish. I think Acts and the Holy Spirit uh, is trying to show us something about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to to follow the Spirit. And, And I think it's this, that At the end of the day, uh, no matter what uh, the problems are, and no matter how we try to solve them, uh, no matter how hard Christians try and spread the word, and no matter how hard people like Elvis over there, or the king over there, try and oppose what God's doing, the word of God continues to spread and flourish I think oftentimes we convince ourselves in our own lives and in the church that if we make the wrong choice or we don't do this quite the right way or or we just, you know, <laughs> we make a mistake, that, that what God is doing is somehow going to fall apart. That, that somehow if we take that risk and it goes badly, if, you know, if something, Lord forbid, happens to us, we wind up in jail or we pray and we don't. Like imagine hard enough what it is that God can do that that it's all going to come crumbling down, but the truth is that no matter what happens, the word of God spreads and flourishes. No matter what people do, good or bad, or how hard we try, God is the actor in Acts. And the story of Acts, at the end of the day, involves Peter and James and, and the king, but it's not a About Peter and James and the king. Just like the stories of our lives, we are connected in them and we participate, we share uh, in in ministry together, we care for each other, we take risks together, it all matters, it's all important, but it's not about our risks. The only question is this. If the word of the God is going to continue to spread and flourish, which team do you want to be on when the game is over? Do you want to get on the train uh, while it's in the station or do you want to stand in front of it? Because the train is going down the track either way. Will you jump into the river and go where God's leading you or will you stand on the shore? But the river flows whether or not we jump in it. The kingdom is advancing. God's word is spreading. God is at work even when it doesn't look like it or feel like it. God is making this whole world and its people New. He wants us to join into what he's doing, but he doesn't uh, need us to. His word advances either way. Uh, he isn't asking us uh, to do it like Herod would and take credit and say we made it happen. He isn't asking us to, to make it happen. He isn't inviting us to change the world. God is making it happen, and we can be a part of it or not. In fact, Jesus died to make that invitation. That's why uh, when Jesus came, he said, come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus came to say, God is doing something with you and this world. And you can come be a part of it, but you can't drive it. Uh, so, the, so this contrast that we looked at earlier, perfect. Um, <clears throat> you know, I... Uh, and this pastor shared this with us too, is that, you know, I, I don't think this is really the question. The question isn't, is it the people going to that building that make the world or the people that follow Jesus, are they the ones that make the world? The question isn't actually between Atlas and the, the world or, or the church. Uh, the question isn't whether or not Herod is going to win in Rome or Peter. No, uh, there's, there's one more picture I want to show you, because the question, the question is different. It's not the church or the business. <clears throat> so that statue uh, right there is inside of St. Patrick's Cathedral. And I think it's, uh, it's really powerful. So you can tell, and I'm not, I didn't grow up with these kind of images. I'm not a Catholic. Uh, but you can see who that is. Who do you think that, that little boy is supposed to be? Any guesses? Sunday school answers are appropriate for moments like these. Jesus, yeah. So, so that statue um, is is a an image, a representation of of the boy Jesus. Jesus is like a like a six or seven year old. Uh, when the when the pastor shared this with us, he said, you know, it's like it's like chicken nugget eating Jesus. <laughs> you know, that's who that's who who that looks like to me too. And so, in in one hand, he's doing he's doing this with his hand. That that uh, uh, talks about the Trinity. That references the Trinity. But what's in his other hand? Is it a wiffle ball? If it were Foster, it'd be a wiffle ball. Uh, but no, in, in the hand of, of the child Jesus, it's, it's the world. And the, the question isn't whether or not it's the people inside the church or the people inside of, of quote unquote, the world that are making things happen. Uh, the question really is, uh, who do we believe holds on to our lives and our world? Do we think it's us? that we've got to bear these burdens as much as we can, we have to make the perfect decisions, otherwise everything's going to fall apart, or are we ready to accept Jesus' invitation and believe that the world is held onto by God? That, that, little, uh, that little kind of boy chicken nugget eating Jesus is able to hold the whole world, and when God holds the world... He can hold it in the hands of a child. And and I don't know if you notice, he's not crushed by the weight of the burden. He holds it lightly. The statue is, is communicating the same message that Acts 12 is trying to communicate to us that the heavens and the world and the earth, that they are not held up by men and women straining under the weight, fighting for control and power and influence. The world is not held in the balance between good and evil, where one wrong move means it's all crashing down. The truth of the gospel is, what Acts 12 wants us to know, is that that is not the story of the earth. In fact, the story of the earth is different. The truth looks a lot more like that little boy Jesus holding the world in his hand. Our world is held by the God who made it. And he doesn't have to to strain under the burden trying to hold it all together. He doesn't need us to change the world or carry it on our backs for him. He just wants us around while he does it. And maybe you hear this, and there's a part of you that thinks, well, then what matters? Who cares? My choices don't, don't matter. No, no, your choices matter, and there are ways that we can follow faithfully in that. Our work is important, but it is not holding the world. We still need to be faithful. We're still called to follow, but we are not the ones carrying that load. We are not the ones holding it together. The countercultural idea is that we are not God, not in our lives, not in our families, not in our businesses, not in even the smallest areas of our lives that we think we can control. The countercultural idea is that we are not God and we do not hold it all together. The countercultural idea isn't that God, uh, it, it, is not that God doesn't need us to change the world for him. He just wants us around while he does it. So we're invited to say yes to that little boy Jesus, that Lord who died on our behalf, who we know holds the world lightly in his hand to lay down the burdens that we think we have to carry to make sure everything's okay. We don't have to worry about how the world will turn out. We don't have to hold it all together. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to control anything or anyone for the word of the Lord to continue. What if we decided to, instead of trying to fix the world's problems and fix the problems of others, instead we just dedicated ourselves to being close to God? To trusting Him and riding that roller coaster, river, or train, or whatever you want to call it, wherever God wants to take us. Let's pray. Lord God, as human beings, we're made in Your image, and the fallen part of us wants to convince ourselves that we're not made in your image, but that we are actually you. That we're the gods of our lives, of the things we're in charge of, of the people we encounter. And we walk around sometimes with heavy burdens, convinced that if we make one wrong move or fall down in one way or don't control this aspect or this person, that things are going to fall apart, that the sky will fall. But the truth is, Lord, that you hold the earth and you hold the sky, that our faithfulness, as important and as beautiful as it is as a sign of love towards you, is not enough to move the world at all. But you invite us, Lord, to lay down our desire to be perfect, to be good, to be God's. You forgive us our sin, and you invite us to a new life, being a part of what you're doing, rather than simply inviting you to bless what we're doing. So, Lord, we confess. We ask that you make us new because your son lived and died and rose again. And we pray, Lord, that you help us to lay down these burdens and instead embrace the light yoke of following you faithfully wherever it is that you lead. We thank you for what you've done and what you're doing and the way that we can trust you, God, to hold it all together. In your name we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite our worship team to come forward. Let's conclude our service in praise thanks for joining us you can find out more about our church our live stream and our in-person services at bethelcov.org thanks and have a great week